So every moment is not like another. Uh, some moments there's, are more important. Some moments, some moments God has something on that moment. And um, so every moment is not the same as, as the other. A, a birth of a child, a wedding ceremony. Those moments are more important than getting up and having breakfast, right? They're both moments, but there's more weight in one of those moments. I think you'd agree. Husbands should be saying amen. And if not, you should be coming to our men's meeting on uh, next week, Wednesday. But can we take ourselves four months back to April? Uh, I was sitting in my office when the rain started. Where were you when the rain started in April of this year? I had to go and pick up my son, one of my sons, after rugby practice. And uh, the rain, by, by the time I got to rugby practice, it was belting down properly. Like the windscreen uppers weren't working. And uh, it, would, it had been a classroom session, so he wasn't in the field. And so I, I parked, in the, Rich and I actually parked in the, in, the, in the parking lot at Northwood, and we waited. And, and while we were waiting, I watched the Northwood Bottom Campus field fill up. And while we were waiting, we watched the BE boys come down and swim on the bottom field. And then um, by the time we got home, the rain had mostly subsided. And uh, I took my maid home. I, dro- I drove her to her house, and I was driving along North Coast Road, and North Coast Road was already a shambles. Uh, the rain had stopped now, but it, it was flooded. North Coast Road was wrecked. And uh, I got home, and uh, I'd obviously checked the weather apps, and I knew there was a little bit of rain coming still. Uh, what I suspected was a bit of rain. And we'd recently done some building, uh, a granny flat <laughs> with a basement. So I thought, I, let, me, let me just go and check the basement. If, if there's been a lot of rain, and I think there's a bit more coming. I checked what I could, sorted out my property. I made as much preparation as I could. Uh, went to bed that night, and we, everybody that was in KZN at that time knows what happened that night. It was a, the biggest flood in a generation, and our first of two in a month. I'm aware that I'm standing out today talking to many people who have lost so much more than others. I'm not only talking possessions and property, I'm talking loved ones, neighbors, friends, people who have lost in that flood. And my point is this. If you could go back to the first week of April, wouldn't you have liked to have had a chance to prepare yourself? Wouldn't it, wouldn't it have been nice if you knew that this massive, life-changing, catastrophic trauma was about to come? If you live in Amawati or Amshloti, wouldn't you have loved a chance to take your possessions, move them out of town? Wouldn't you have liked a chance to get your loved ones and your friends and your neighbors out of danger zones, out of hotspots, before it happened? Wouldn't you have loved that chance? Of course we would. I don't say this to make light of anybody's experience, but the answer to that is, of course, we would all have liked to have known that this was coming so that we could prepare ourselves and so that we could make sure that what we could do whatever we could to avoid tragedy. All of us would like to do that. Friends, our, our story is racing towards a climax. The story that we are living in is racing towards a climax. And there's nothing that we can do about it any more than we can stop the clouds from raining on us. But what we can do is make sure that we're not caught out by it and lose everything. So as tragic as the floods were, it's far more tragic. It will be far more tragic at the end of our age for people who are caught unaware and unprepared. I have, over the last month or two, been sitting and, I, and I've come back. I, I, I've been chatting with a few people over the, over the last week or so. so and I, I've come back with, with a burning sense of urgency for the times that we live in a burning sense of urgency that around that we are living, coming and fast approaching the end of the world. Now, I, I know, I'm very aware that as soon as I say the words, the end of the world, everyone starts to picture something in their mind, some of it right and much of it wrong. 
everyone listening to me immediately starts categorizing me. Some people think that I'm very awake and very aware. Other people think that I'm a doomsday prepper. All right? I get that. And to be honest, I'm not that concerned about it. So it doesn't bother me. But what I do know is that I'm more convinced today than I ever have been in my life that during my, children, my children's lifetime, if not my own lifetime, we will be seeing the end of the ages and Jesus returning. I'm convinced, like I've never been convinced before. And that's not a prophecy, it's not a prediction, it's not a scare tactic. It's a sense that I get based on looking at the signs of the times that we live in. I can see the poor drainage. I can see the poor soil percolation. I can see the poor development and town planning. I can see climate change. And I can see storm clouds gathering. Wouldn't you like to have been able to go back and prepare yourself if you knew that there was a flood coming, wouldn't you like to have prepared your possessions, your loved ones, your friends, your neighbors to avoid tragedy? How much worse to arrive at the end of the world and Jesus' return, unprepared, unaware, and caught off guard. One of the early church reformers, a man by the name of Martin Luther, said this, not, not Martin Luther King, Martin Luther, sorry, let me just get this working here quickly. He said this, Live as if Jesus was crucified yesterday, rose from the dead today, and is returning tomorrow. Live as if he was crucified yesterday, he rose from the dead today, and he's returning tomorrow. Jesus himself constantly warns his hearers that they need to be able to recognize the times that they live in. In fact, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, he gets angry with the Pharisees. He says to them, who warned you to avoid the coming wrath? It's, it's the equivalent of uh, big, big companies that are causing climate change and, and causing more flooding, also having the chance to get their possessions out before the floods come, right? Says the Pharisees, who warned you? Who warned you to flee the wrath that is to come? Friends, I believe that the church has lost something of the urgency of Christ's return. I believe that we've been ignoring this warning signs for too long, and we're in a situation where tragedy is about to strike, and we have to keep preparing ourselves and preparing others. So what does the end of the world look like? There's quite a lot to go through here. So over the next week or two, I want to spend some time going through some of the signs of the times, what it looks like, what, the end of the, what, what are the signs of the end of times, what the end of times is like, and what we need to do to keep preparing ourselves and to keep preparing others so that calamity doesn't strike us, tragedy doesn't strike us, our loved ones, our friends, our neighbors. There's also a lot that I'm not going to be going through because I want to take quite a complex topic and I want to make it as simple as possible without diluting any of it and give everybody something that they can hold on to. So as soon as I say the end of the world, most people under the age of 25 picture what? Zombie apocalypse. Am I wrong? Zombie apocalypse. We picture a wasteland where people emerge from underground uh, most likely from some sort of nuclear fallout. And for some reason, the only haircuts that are allowed are mohawks. <laughs> the only clothes you're allowed wearing is leather with studs. If you want to have a car or uh, water and electricity, you need to be married to a, a technician or a plumber because inexplicably every tradesman has died <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the nuclear waste. Right? You need to know somebody. That's what most people picture. Simply because we haven't read any, much, any more than that in our Bibles. And the little bit that we have read, perhaps we don't understand, and so we, we steer clear of it. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says this, But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. 
For in the days before the flood, it's Noah's flood, not our flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the day the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in a field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the handmill, one will be taken and the other left. Therefore, Jesus says, keep watch, because you don't know on what day your Lord will come. You don't know on what day your Lord will come. Friends, there won't be a zombie apocalypse, Jesus says. He says we'll be going on our lives as usual. We'll be eating, drinking, partying, walking up a hill, working in the handmill. We'll be, we'll be going on with life as usual, and it'll come. Keep watch, because you don't know on the what day your Lord will come. So again, I'm not going to go through everything that needs to take place, but I'm, I'm, I'm asking you as a community, I'm asking us as a community, spend some time in the book of Matthew. Spend some time in the book of Daniel. Spend some time in the book of 2 Peter. And spend some time in the book of Revelation. If you've looked at Revelation and you've, and you've perhaps read the book of Revelation or you've started to read the book of Revelation and it doesn't make a lot of sense to you, perhaps there's, there's, there's a lot going on there and you don't understand it, that's fine. D- don't start there. You can get there, right? Start with Jesus' words. What did Jesus say needs to take place? What has already taken place and what still needs to take place? It's a good place to start. So when we don't know what to look for, we can get quite easily fooled. So I'm young, but I'm old enough to have lived through the turn of the century, right? The new millennium, the year, 1st of January, 2000. If you, were, if you were old enough to have lived through that, you would remember the panic that went down. We were convinced our computers, our microwaves, our calculators at school, all going to stop working. Banks were going to collapse. Housing, everything, the world was going to come grinding to a halt on the 1st of January 2000, right? We can, we can have a little bit of a giggle about it now, but for people then, for many people then, it was a genuine fear. Let's take it back a year or so to COVID when the vaccine first came out. How many people, Christians, genuinely didn't want to take the vac- a vaccine because they believed it was the mark of the beast? To take a vaccine meant that you would lose your salvation. When we don't know what to look for, we will never see it. And even if we do see it, we won't recognize it. So for the purposes of today, I want to look at three things that must happen, what our response to that be, and then we can, we can end it and go and have some coffee, and we can carry on next week. So for the purposes of today, what must happen? Firstly, number one, all must hear. Jesus' disciples ask him, what needs, what needs to take place before the end of the world? And Jesus answers, Matthew 24. Verse 13, he says this, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached. Some of the other translations say, must be preached. In the whole world, as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So during the late 90s and early 2000s, if you were a follower of Jesus at that time, you would remember um, the, the, the thing at the time was the 1040 window. Have you heard of the 1040 window, if you were following Jesus then? And uh, what, it, what it is, is... Um, Longitude and latitude, so between 10 and 40 degrees north of the equator, uh, that was uh, a zone that had the most unreached people groups, people with the least access to the gospel, and the worst socioeconomic conditions. So the poorest and the least touched by the gospel lived in that 1040 window. So the big drive at the time was, we need to preach the God, to, to fulfill this scripture, we need to preach the gospel to the, in the 1040 window, people that have the least access to the gospel. And so that was the drive, and the drive, and the drive. Uh, in, in that little zone, 10, 10 to 40 degrees north of the equator, is about 4 billion people. 
which means that a good percentage of the earth's population lives at that time had not heard the gospel, had no access to the gospel. A missions organization uh, released a report uh, late last year or early this year, and uh, their report says that in the year 2015, there was around 1,400 people groups still left on earth that had had no access to the gospel. By the beginning of this year, there were a few hundred groups left, with hundreds being engaged every year. And then he ends his report with these words, By God's grace, the church will reach all the remaining groups by the end of 22, or closely thereafter. Friends, those words should make us take note. Those words should make us sit bolt up in our seats, should give us a little bit of goosebumps and make us and fill us with a sense of urgency. By the end of 2022, possibly shortly thereafter, there will be no more unreached people groups on earth. Jesus is, this is not the only sign that Jesus is saying. He's not saying that's the only thing that needs to take place and then the end will come. But he does say when the gospel is preached to every nation, then the end will come. It's a sign. It's not the only sign, but it's a sign that the end is not far off. The end is not near. The end is very near. So I'm not predicting dates. I'm I'm not. It's just a sign. It's not the only sign. I'm simply pointing the town planning, the climate change, the drainage, the storm clouds. Take note, Jesus says. See the signs. Prepare yourself. Make sure that you are ready. What else must happen? Number two, labor pains will increase. Matthew 24, verse 4, Jesus says, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming I'm the Messiah, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these, Jesus says, are the beginning of birthing pains. Romans chapter 8, Paul says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Friends, when we read these scriptures, we realize that throughout history there's been famines, there's been uh, floods and earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars throughout history. But what's, what, we're seeing, what, what we need to recognize is that they are increasing in frequency and intensity. So when you go into labor, so I'm told, you, you begin off with something called Braxton Hicks, which is, a, which is the onset of labor, right? It's, it is mild labor pains, and mild is a very, um, it's a relative word, okay? I have no idea. To be honest, I'm a man. I've never gone through it, and I probably never will. Probably. But it's uh, at the onset of labor, at Braxton Hicks, when you, when you start your labor contractions, they're very, they're very mild, there's a long period in between, and they last for a very short period of time, right? That's not a time to panic. That's a time, oh, I'm going into labor, isn't this wonderful? Phone the friends, phone, you know, phone, get, make sure your husband's home from work, Let's, we, we need to start uh, preparing ourselves, is the, is the go bag packed? That's the time to start doing that, Right? As you then start going, as labor then progresses, and it sounds like I'm, I'm speaking from experience, so I'm not. Um, as labor progresses, I'm speaking authoritatively, but not from experience, right? Um, as labor progresses, what happens is those contractions get closer together, those contractions get longer, and they get more intense. 
That's what happens as labor progresses. It lets you know uh, you're not beginning labor. What's happening is you're, a, you're in labor. You're about to give birth. This baby, is, this, this baby is coming. Now, from person to person, from lady to lady, the, the, the time of that onset to the birth varies. For some ladies, from the onset to birth can be under an hour. For other people, from the beginning of those Braxton Hicks contractions to labor can be over a day, sometimes two days. Depends on, the person, depends on a number of things. The point is this. Just because you haven't given birth yet doesn't mean you're no longer in labor. Jesus says that from his time, the earth has been experiencing Braxton Hicks, smiled contractions. He says the beginning of labor pains. Paul says that it's, it's not only, it, it's all of creation that groans, us included, for we long to receive the new birth that is coming, the birth of a new age, an age free from sin and death and decay, an age where the rule of Jesus is established, a new heaven and a new earth. And as the earth, as the earth has been in labor for what seems like a very long time, people stop worrying about it because the labor has gone a bit longer. People stop worrying about it. No, friends, the longer the labor goes on for, the closer you are to birth. Logically, just because you haven't given birth yet doesn't mean you are no longer in labor. I, I believe and I'm convinced that we are currently in full-blown labor. This is not the early stages of labor where you can sit at home and rub your wife's feet and make her a warm cup of tea and phone the friends. This is get the go bag, get to the car and get to hospital. The baby is coming. The birth is coming. So these things don't happen in isolation, right? If it was just one of these things on their own, perhaps we've got a bit more time. If it was just these two things, okay, maybe it's a little bit less time, but we've still got some time, right? But it's more than this. What else must happen? Number three, we must be hated because of Jesus. Matthew chapter 10 says this, Jesus says, brother will betray brother to death and a father is child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. And then verse 22 says, You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. What can, we, what, can, what can we observe about societal shifts over the last 10 to 15 years? What has changed in society over the last 10 to 15 years? There's, there's a few things, but I think one of the major ones is a massive shift towards individualism. A massive shift towards placing the individual front and center of society. Everything revolves around and an individual or the individual. We've got this individual expression, individual freedoms, individual rights, individual truth, individual experience, and we're told that nobody can argue with or disagree with the individual because they are the front and the center. There's obviously been, some of this has been positive. For example, it no longer costs us two million lives to build a pyramid. That's positive, right? So there's individual value that's been placed, so let's not throw that out. That's, that's a positive. But what happens when your idea of individualism and my idea of individualism come into direct conflict and we are not allowed to disagree with an individual? One of us is wrong. One of us has to be wrong, logically. I can remember a couple of years ago, I was in the bush with some friends and we were photographing birds. And uh, there was one bird that we were photographing it was moving from bush to bush, a gorgeous bush strike, if anybody cares. Um, Ferdy will care because he's a birder. Um, and we're going from, from, from bush to bush uh, and uh, photographing, the, photographing a bird. 
and I would take a photo, and then it would fly off the next bush, and next bush, and, and then it flew off. And we suddenly looked at each other and realized it had been about 15 minutes that uh, we'd been concentrating on this bird, and we disappeared deep into the bush for 15 minutes in a big fire reserve. The bush is thick, and neither of us have any idea where we are. And so I look at him, and I say, which way do you think the car is? And he points that way, and, I, and at the same time, I'm pointing that way. <laughs> Left and right. Like, it's not as if it was uh, there and then like five degrees off there. Okay, we can go in that general direction and we'll find the car. Left and right. It's like one of us was 100% wrong. There was no like 10% wrong, 20% wrong. One of us was 100% wrong. What happens when your idea of individualism and my idea of individualism come into direct conflict? I think that there's too many people that can't fathom a world where they're wrong. And so instead, what happens is we retreat further and further into our individual corners, into our individualism. And every now and again, we throw a stone at one of the other sides, hoping to get them to give up some of their evil individualism and embrace our version of individualism instead. To call yourself a Christian means that you don't place the individual at the center. To call yourself a Christian, to be a Christian, means that you place Jesus at the center. He is what everything revolves around. To be a Christian means that I voluntarily give up all of my individual rights, all of my individual freedoms, all of my individual expression, all of my individual ideas, and I submit to him. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means when Jesus says the car is left and I feel like it's right, I choose to follow him anyway. I think that some people hate Christians because of Jesus and some people hate Christians because of Christians. There's a difference between those two things. There's a big difference. Friends, we aren't called to sit in corners and throw Jesus stones at glass houses and then tell those people whose houses break that it's because of Jesus that their house broke when we were the ones who threw the stones at them. Today is the day, friends, not tomorrow, when us holding to Jesus being the center of everything will cause the world to hate us. You can't convince people to come to church because it's cool anymore. The ideals of the Bible are further and further removed from the ideals of society. That's not a political statement, that's just fact. This is why we have to keep holding to a radical ethic of love. If Christians cannot love a world that hates them, then we're not keeping Jesus at the center either. We're keeping ourselves at the center. So Jesus says, the sign of the times is that more and more people will hate you. But before he says that, he says to his disciples, and you need to, hate, you need to love those who hate you. You need to love your enemies. And so what, the, what that means is the sign is more people will hate you. The preparation has to be, therefore, you will love more people. If you're called to love those who hate you and more people start hating you, you should be loving more people every single day. If more people love me, and if more people hate me, and I'm not loving them, all that means is I've put myself at the center, and I haven't put Jesus at the center. I'm revolving around myself. I'm not revolving around what Jesus has asked me to do. Surely Jesus, not, not the fool down the road, he keeps telling me that I'm a bigot for following you. No, love your enemies. Surely not my boss. She keeps telling me, she keeps using the fact that I 
Don't believe the same thing as her as a reason to not promote me. Surely not her. No, your enemies. Those who hate you. The enemy who is at your gates. The enemy who is looking to devour you. The enemy who persecutes you relentlessly because of Jesus. Jesus says, if you want to have me in the center and not yourself, you have to love them. See, the problem with not loving our enemies is that we retreat into our individualism, the same individualism that defines our age, instead of holding on to Jesus at the center. The world will hate you, Jesus says, but I'm instructing you to love those who hate you, a sign and a preparation. There's a couple more signs that I want to go through in the next week or two, and I want to address a few more of the preparations that we need to make. But I want to close off this morning on today with uh, one of the first preparations that we need to do. So that's what must happen. Uh, what, what do we need to do about it? So I want to just close off with this. What should we do about it? Stand firm. Jesus says in, in verse 22 um, of Matthew chapter 10, the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. The one who stands firm to the end will be saved. The word that has been used over the last year or so with gathering momentum is the word resilience, to be resilient. I lo- and, and I've grown to love that word and hate it more and more as, as, I've, as I've delved a little bit deeper into it. Jesus says, stand, the one who stands firm to the end, the one who is resilient to the end, will be saved. Resilient faith means that I'm able to withstand pressure. My faith is able to withstand persecution. My faith is able to withstand hardship. When we go through tough times, when we doubt, when we struggle, we stand firm in our faith to the end. See, resilient faith is able to stand on a stage and say, I've, I've gone through cancer, we've gone through heart attacks, we've gone through addiction, and my God is still good. Resilient faith. There were some stats released about two years ago that revealed that Christians under the age of 30, only 10% have resilient faith. 10% of believers under the age of 30 have resilient faith. So you'll see their prodigals at 22%. Prodigals are ex-Christians, people who used to be considered themselves Christians. They came to church perhaps when they were younger, but they no longer identify as Christians at 22% under the age of 30. Nomads or lapsed Christians, people who identify themselves as Christians but haven't attended church during the last month. The vast majority of nomads haven't been involved with a faith community for six months or more, sitting at 30%. Habitual churchgoers at 38%. Those are people who describe themselves as Christian and they have attended church at least once in the past, at least once in the past month but they don't have foundational core beliefs or behaviors associated with being a Christian or an intentional, engaged disciple. Resilient disciples, people with resilient faith at 10%, are Christians, firstly, who attend church at least monthly and engage with their church more than just attending a Sunday service. Secondly, who trust firmly in the authority of the Bible. Thirdly, are committed to Jesus personally, and they affirm and they, they confirm that he was crucified and raised from the dead to conquer sin and death. And fourthly, they are those who express a desire to transform the broader society based on their faith. 10%. This isn't a young person problem. It's a problem that's found there, but it also has its roots in the previous generations and my generation. So these, these stats are not there for the older generation to say, to sit back smugly and say, they don't make them like they used to. 
See, the, my children's faith is a fruit of my faith. The next generation's faith is a fruit of my faith. And so when the next generation's faith fails them, I can't say, look how bad your fruit is. Because they can turn around and say, yeah, but you sowed the seeds of, of the trees that are bearing my fruit today. So this, this is a survey down in under 30s, and it's got implications for everybody, right? It's not to shame anybody or exalt anybody. It's rather to say that the number of people who have resilient faith is declining. But the number of people who are coming to faith is increasing. There's not me moaning about the fact that the church is going backwards and the church is not what it used to be. There's not that at all. People are coming to faith today at a rate we have never seen before. This is me standing before you as a pastor, standing before his people and asking you, begging you, encouraging you, stand firm to the end. Have resilient faith. What this means is that when Jesus says stand firm, he doesn't only mean come to church. To stand firm to the end. He doesn't mean make sure that you go to church once a week to the end. He doesn't mean add a, add a little bit of Christianity to your life. He's like add a teaspoon, what a teaspoon of sugar, it'll help the medicine go down. The medicine of life, if you add a teaspoon of Christianity to it, it'll help it go down. That's not what he means. He doesn't mean give it a try and then leave it and abandon it. He means stand firm. Don't let your love grow cold. Don't let your faith be the thing that fails when everything else is also failing. See, for so many people, we only sort of want God. We only sort of want God. What we really want is for life to be good again. And if, if uh, it seems that God is making that happen for us, then we're happy to believe and we're happy to come, we're happy to raise our hands in worship. But if it seems that that's not happening with God, then we're happy to go and try something else. We're happy to, to, we're happy to work longer hours thinking we can do, do that. We're happy to take longer holidays. Perhaps we can find it in that. The longing for everything to be good again, that longing for life and peace is a, as a God-given longing. It's because our hearts remember Eden. Our hearts remember what it was like when things were good, when things were at peace. When we walked in the cool of the day with our Father, our hearts remember that. And so there's a God-given longing in, all, in every single one of us to return to that. But we can't go backwards. We have to go forward. We have to get through the end of the age to get back to that. The only way for us to get back there is to return to the source of life, the source of peace, the source of fulfillment, Jesus. And when we try and find it through anything else, what happens is that we end up progressively more disappointed, progressively more frustrated and disillusioned. And that causes us to not stand firm. It makes our faith not resilient. See, grass in the summertime is resilient. Grass in the summertime, when you walk on it, it doesn't crunch and crackle. You, you, you leave footprints through the grass, but you come the next day, the, the, the grass is growing back up again because it's full of nourishment. It's full of moisture. It's full of life. You try and start a fire in green grass. It doesn't burn. It's well nourished and watered. Winter grass is not resilient. Winter grass is dry and hard, and when you walk on it, it cracks and it breaks. It's susceptible to fire. There's no life, no nourishment, no resilience. You break it. You walk on it. And it needs to wait for the next rains to come in spring before it can grow back again. Jesus says, stand firm, be resilient. The world is going to leave footprints on you. The world is going to walk on you and break you and try and burn you. But if you remain in me, I'll give you life. 
I will sustain you. The next day, the footprints will be gone because there's life flowing through you. See, being resilient isn't about us trying harder. Standing firm is not about trying harder, digging deeper, doing more. It's simply about us remaining in Jesus. As we remain in him, we stand firm, and so we become resilient. He warns his disciples to stand firm, but before he warns them to stand firm, he says to them, remain in me. Remain in me so that you can stand firm. My prayer for each one of us is that we will be filled with an urgency at this time, an urgency to preach the good news of this gospel so that we can rescue people from the tragedy that is coming and fast approaching. The town planning, the rampant development, the poor drainage, the gathering storm clouds, there's a massive catastrophic flood on the way and we have prior knowledge about it. We know it's coming. We know where it's going to strike. Tell people, warn them, stand firm. As the world tries to break you and stand on you, as it hates you, keep returning to Jesus as the source, as the center of everything. Remain in Jesus. Stand firm. Have resilient faith. Can you stand with me, please, friends?